Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. Tonight, we're going to have our first journal club as part of our PSA All the Way campaign. Um, I'm going to be joined by a number of good friends who will review to, for us two important papers that have been published in the last year or so on psoriatic arthritis. I want to um, remind you that our um, campaign has been sponsored by uh, Janssen, giving us um, the freedom to do uh, all the coverage that we've been doing in the last few weeks and throughout the month of, Jan of, of April. And thank you to Janssen for that. Um, today, we're going to cover two papers. I'm gonna ask our, um, um, our colleagues to come back on screen, um, Drs. Nash, Mies, and Tate. Um, thank you very much all. Um, uh, and uh, why doesn't everybody introduce themselves um, first? Philip, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Philip Mies, a rheumatologist based in Seattle at Swedish Medical Center, Providence St. Joseph Health. Uh, and I direct uh, rheumatology research here and have been a long-term friend and fan of Jack, um, as has my wife, who he got tickets to see the Pope in Rome together. And so we're forever ever indebted to Jack for that thrilling experience. <laughs> yeah, there's a story behind that we can't go into here, but another time maybe. But I forgot all about that, Philip. Rachel. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate. I am also a clinical rheumatologist. I am in Hollywood, Florida now. And um, like Dr. Mies, I am also indebted to Dr. Kush, but that's because I worked with him and he allowed me to stay on and help with room now as well. So um, I'm happy to be here tonight and uh, be joined by such esteemed colleagues. Yeah, Rachel and I are gonna present these two great articles. <laughs> to our two great colleagues now, finally, but not least, Dr. Peter Nash. Hi, Jack. Peter Nash, a rheumatologist, professor of rheumatology at Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane in Australia. And Jack has not bought my wife any tickets for anything, so I'm just hanging in there. <laughs> you know, one year I actually got tickets to the French Open, and I, it was me and my, my two friends who came with me to, to Paris, and I had an extra ticket and I won't say who, but one of the, our, our rheumatologist friends who works for uh, Pharma got to go and she tells everybody, Jack took, took, she, Jack Kush took me to the French Open. She was out of her mind because she's such a gigantic tennis fan. So, you know, maybe, Peter, you have to be nice to me. You never know. I could pull oh. through for you. Early days. Early days, Jay. <laughs> All right. Let's get into it. Um, we've got two interesting articles that we chose. Um, the advisory panel for our campaigns, chose um, articles um, from the last uh, year or so. And we're going to start with uh, this one here, which is on the efficacy of, let me do this a full screen share here. There we go. Rachel, why don't you take over? I'll be the one to advance the slides. Absolutely, I will, Jack, thanks. So, um, this is a pre-specified uh, analysis of patients who were enrolled in Exceed, and um, which looked at monotherapy, secukinumab, and adalimumab in psoriatic arthritis patients. And this particular analysis dives a little bit more into patients who also had moderate to severely active skin disease or psoriasis plaques. And again, it's over a 52-week period. 
What I want to point out to you is that this was originally um, published in March of 2021 in the British Journal of Dermatology. And our um, author on this is Dr. Alice Gottlieb, who you know from Mount Sinai. Now, in terms of interventions, I'll briefly go over this. You can see it on the bottom of this particular slide, but we're looking at secukinumab 300 milligrams sub-Q at baseline at weeks one through four, and then every four weeks until week 48, or adalimumab 40 milligrams sub-Q every two weeks until week 50. So there's no placebo arm in this particular trial, as you are aware. Next slide, please. Or have Jack advanced my slides before, it's kind of nice. So what is our primary endpoint? So the primary endpoint we're looking at is an ACR20 response at week 52. Our secondary endpoints are secondary endpoints. Also at week 52, we're looking at a PACI 90 score, ACR50 response, HACDI score, and a lead enthesitis index of zero or complete enthesitis resolution. Now on the left-hand side of this particular slide, you're gonna see that Kaplan-Meier curve and um, that's the days to treatment discontinuation in both the secukinumab arm and the adalimumab arm. So the secukinumab I'll point out is blue and the um, adalimumab arm is kind of that broken dashed uh, red arm. So in terms of the trial design, you'll see that on the right-hand side of the slide. So the top third of the slide shows you that the, the total randomized patients can exceed. So that's an N of over 850 patients randomized into either secukinumab or adalimumab one-to-one. -one. Now we're actually doing a deeper dive into that sub-analysis, which is the number of patients who also had a BSA score of less or greater than 10% or a PASI score of greater than or equal to 10, which the number decreases to about a quarter of the patients originally in exceed. And again, you can see secukinumab arm versus adalimumab arm. I'll point out the bottom part of this particular slide. Again, I mentioned this earlier about discontinuation, but these are the reasons patients discontinued. And then of course, the number that actually completed through week 50 and at week 52. Next slide, please, sir. Yeah, I want to just interject and tell the audience that um, we really, we're going to review this, ask, uh, discuss it, and then we want to take your questions about this research or anything related to these interventions. And you'll do so by using the Q&A section, not the chat, chat section, but the Q&A session. Go on, Rachel. So the next slide is our baseline characteristics. So again, Exceed really looked at patients who are biologic naive and who had had an intolerance or an inadequate response to CSD marts. So what you'll see here and what I kind of want to point out to you about this particular subset of patients, vast majority of patients were male, they were Caucasian. You can see their BMI and smoking status. Smoking status was in about 25% of patients. Um, you'll also notice baseline PASI scores, tender and swollen joint counts. These patients had to have at least three tender and three swollen joints to be enrolled in Exceed. And of course, I'm going to point out the presence of enthesitis and dactylitis. Things to consider for this particular trial is that, again, the patients had to have a, a PASI score of, pardon me, this analysis of this trial, PASI score of greater than or equal to 10 or a body surface area of 10%. And of course, um, these are adult patients, they could have washed out of methotrexate for four weeks, and then they needed to have, um, if they were on methotrexate, and eight weeks for any other CSD mards or leflunamide. Now, patients could also be on steroid. 
So I want to point this out. They had to be on a stable dose for greater than two weeks prior to enrollment, but they could be on up to 10 milligrams of systemic steroids per day. So I want to throw that out there so you can see that information here as well. And of course, for exclusion criteria, patients couldn't be pregnant. They couldn't have a history of a malignancy. They couldn't be an opiate patient, so no opiate use, no um, oral or topical retinoids, and they could not be a patient receiving photochemotherapy. Next, so can, I, uh, can I ask our, our um, colleagues, why do you think it was important to do this particular sub-analysis on patients with more severe skin disease? Peter, do you want to answer that first? Well, I think um, the derm audience look at slightly different things to us. They're used to having PASI scores of 24 in their studies, and we're used to having PASI scores of eight. So they really want to see what happens to skin and nails. They want to see what happens to the DLQI, something we don't measure very often. They find that dermatology life quality index very important for them. So there's a slightly different um, approach to what interests them compared to the joint docs. So I think it's not unreasonable to look at the group with the worst skin, which is the ones they treat. Philip, do you think there's any um, value to this kind of study for the rheumatologist? One of the studies we did in the what was then called the Corona Registry, uh, Jack, and it now is called Corevitas, was to ask the question, does moderate to severe skin disease have an influence on the rest of the patient's psoriatic arthritis activity. And we found that patients that did have moderate to severe psoriasis, as in this population here, it was a biomarker of more severe disease in general, more tender and swollen joints, more enthesitis and dactylitis, worse quality of life and function, uh, and more days missed at work. So it was, in essence, a biomarker of, of disease severity. So what they're doing here is they're saying, okay, we saw how um, secukinumab versus adalimumab worked in the overall exceed trial. Let's narrow down and look at those patients that have um, bad skin disease as well as very active joint disease, uh, as Dr. Tate has just uh, in, uh, indicated here, uh, and see if there's any difference in the overall outcomes of this head-to-head -head, uh, trial. Dr. Mace, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I just had a question. When you talk about it being a biomarker, um, was there a particular BSA or PASI score that patients had to achieve in order to have that kind of biomarker influence? Well, we consider anything less than 3% body surface area to be relatively mild, 3 to 10% to be moderate, and over 10% to be severe. So that those are the sort of standard thresholds that we use. And I would say anything that's in the moderate to severe category has an influence on the overall outcome, uh, uh, status of the patient and outcomes of the patient. Skin matters. Yeah. I guess the real question is, are those the patients, the moderate to severe, as far as skin involvement, do they end up in our practices? I can think of a bunch, but... Generally, most of my patients are not. They're more, as Peter says, you know, low number uh, posse scores, and um, and and uh, you know, it's it's an, the management of the skin is an afterthought because I'm I'm controlling their joints and their skin kind of goes along for the ride. But I don't know. I'm with you, Jack. We see um, very little skin, but a lot of joints. They see a lot of skin with little joints, and we share the ones in the middle who have a problem with both. 
Yeah. So I, I would agree. It's same in our practice. But one of the things that we are always forgetting is where is the patient uh, having their psoriasis? So in their scalp, it's itching like mad and they're going crazy with itching their scalp. Um, a genital uh, psoriasis, which they don't spontaneously bring up with this. These are important additional characteristics besides the surface area involved in the psoriasis. And luckily we're seeing more trials that are being focused on those particular areas like genital and scalp and you know the all the places rheumatologists generally don't want to look. Go ahead, Rachel. So these are the um, endpoints as we kind of spoke about earlier. So again, the blue lines are um, the secukinumab arm and the adalimumab arm is that red. So I'll let you peruse this in terms of ACR20, ACR50, PASI90, and resolution of enthesitis with a leads enthesitis index of zero, just so you can look at this very briefly to see the numbers. I will point out the PASI score. Um, there is a separation of those two numbers. We're going to come back to that in just a second. Go to the next slide, Jack. Okay, so when it comes to combining an ACR50 and a PASI100 score, so looking at this slightly differently, we already, kind of, I mentioned a minute ago that there's a separation between secukinumab and adalimumab when it comes to PASI scoring specifically um, and individually. But what about if we combine those? And again, you're seeing kind of a similar trend. Um, also included on the slide is the PASI100 and the PASI75 scores. What I also want to point out on this slide that I found interesting is not only do we see a separation between the two arms, but we're also seeing an earlier response time in the secukinumab arm, as you can see listed below in the weeks um, for both of these, or all three of these actually, particular endpoints. I could just interject a comment here. One of the things that this really highlights is uh, before this trial was done and before the spirit head-to-head trial with ixacizumab versus adalimumab was done, I think there was a kind of pervasive idea within rheumatology circles that, yeah, IL-17 works, uh, certainly works in the skin, but gee, is it as effective in the musculoskeletal domains? And is it, does it work as quickly uh, as the TNF inhibitors? I think uh, both this trial and the SPIRIT head-to-head trial really reassured us. They, I, look at those kinetics. I mean, it's rapid onset of action, uh, very significant uh, and uh, robust uh, ACR20 response, ACR50 response, no question, but that we these drugs are uh, very good uh, players for us uh, in the armamentarium for treatment. And I think it really helped um, dispel some of that old myth that maybe they weren't as effective in the musculoskeletal domain. Can I comment? Yeah, I was going to say I agree with um, Phil. What we saw was that the speed of onset was the same, the depth of response was the same, and there was no loss of efficacy over time, which was one of the criticisms, for example, of ustekinumab, that you get this tachyphalasis over time. I think it's very important to point out this is a monotherapy study. Against advice, they didn't leave background methotrexate. They washed it out. And, you know, the people then say, well, have you crippled adalimumab by taking away its methotrexate? And they did use a citrate-free 0.4 mil um, uh, adalimumab because we'll talk about SAEs later on, but 
quite interesting. So the skin, we knew they would win, but we weren't sure about the joints. And I think not only the joints, all the other domains, as Phil has pointed out, enthesitis, dactylitis, uh, axial, we know from the AS studies and the non-radiographic studies, skin and nails. And I think they got, um, at least Spirit Head to Head, got a lot of criticism for making their primary endpoint the ACR50 plus the PASI100. But it speaks to Phil's comments, the skin and nails are very important to these people. And we shouldn't just focus on joints alone. But do you think that, aside from taking away the methotrexate, um, did they choose the right dose? Is 40 every other week the right dose for, for active greater than 10% psoriasis? Or you know, should they be have done uh, weekly dosing there? Uh, and would that have changed some of the, this, the, the, the skin kinetics? I think they had to go with the label around the world and what people are allowed to use. And we can certainly only use two weekly. I know when we did the very original RA trials where it was called D2E7, that was a long time ago, we found about a third of our patients needed weekly dosing for RA. I don't think that's ever been done in PSA. Yeah. Okay, really interesting comments. So in addition to uh, those responses that we just spoke about, that also showed that secukinumab was um, showed improvement in then adalimumab and other um, areas, including dactylitis, uh, low disease activity, not necessarily remission. And then, of course, we mentioned this briefly. I think Dr. Mies mentioned this, the dermatology life quality index, which is something that our dermatology colleagues are hopefully assessing on their patients as well. And if you want to see the overall outcomes, this is just a nice pictorial representation of that. But we kind of talked about it already in terms of what we um, what we saw with the seed in this particular subset analysis. And then the last slide. Before you is, leave, so uh, Rachel, yeah, do you mind do you do you mind no. just com commenting on the MDA and the VLDA mm -hmm. uh, at at the bottom of the um, of the picture? Well, I'll um, let you do it, Dr. Meese. Well, just uh, <laughs> uh, so these this is very interesting. Uh, numerically greater uh, MDA response uh, and VLD re response with secukinumab than adalimumab. Not statistically significant, but keep in mind that this is only 25% of the total exceed population. So with lower numbers, it's gonna be a little bit harder sh to show stat cygnus. But nonetheless, this is also re reinforcing the point that with IL-17 agents, we can get to a desirable uh, treatment target, uh, which um, many of us consider this minimal disease activity criteria uh, or very low disease activity criteria, which we consider remission. I think this is a, an important uh, uh, observation. Obviously, it lets, us, sorry, it lets us work out number needed to treat. So you could say to your patient, I'll treat two and a half patients and I'll get one MDA. And when it comes to SAEs, I've got to 12, treat 12 and a half patients to get one SAE. So it starts to put in the risk and benefit a little bit and maybe something that people could get used to um, working out. And I just found that the DERMS define severe psoriasis using the, the rule of tens, BSA over 10%, PASI over 10, DLQI over 10. Um, so that they, they have a rule of tens. They like the DLQI. Dr. Nash, is that how you explain um, treatment options for your patients? 
that to us about SAEs versus um, MDA or LDA? I like to tell patients when I start treatment off, and everyone is very risk averse. So a number of, you had two head-to-heads in PSA, and you could argue this, for example, they missed their primary endpoints. So all these other secondary analyses are unadjusted and they're sort of nominal Ps rather than statistical Ps, but numerically they're different. But to be able to tell somebody, look, I'm going to have a very good chance of getting about half of you in, in an MDA very good state over a year, we're going to cut any chance of you having any X-ray progression from, you know, down to very small numbers. And you've got a very small chance of having significant adverse events. And we're really only going to look for a couple of things, which we'll talk about later, a bit of candida, a bit of IBD. So people like to weigh, they're so focused on safety um, and we're very focused on efficacy. Uh, Philip, VLDA, um, wasn't paying much attention to that. And I seen, I guess, looking at some of this literature recently, I seem to see that uh, a little bit more. Do you think it's a, it has legs in, in our trials? Should it be used? Seems, maybe it's too severe, too, too strict. Uh, that's a good, a good question, Jack. Um, we, of course, measure it in our clinic because we're entering our patients into the Acoravitas registry. So we get MDAs and VLDAs on everybody. And I must admit, uh, our nurse practitioners that I work with, if they if a patient has a single swollen joint, they feel defeated. So um, it's 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 sort of uh, it, uh, it is something that we strive for, and especially if you have a bunch of patients that work at Amazon and Microsoft, as we do in Seattle, they really track these things. They come in with their spreadsheets, and they've got their MDA values and their VLDA values, and they're trying for the VLDA, but they realize, ah, we might not be able to quite get there because I'm a little fatigued uh, or I'm, I've got a little bit more pain. But uh, MDA, I think, is really a good measure because it's so correlated with everything we want. Uh, inhibition of uh, radiographic progression, uh, good work productivity, great quality of life. Uh, so I think uh, at least MDA, but if you're really a stickler for perfection, then get into VLDA. Jack, I think of it as the Boolean remission they define for RA, something aspirational, but not many patients get to Boolean because these people have had five, six years of disease, will have a bit of damage, and to get tender joint count to zero, that's a bit tough. Mm -hmm. The only other thing about MDA, people say, oh, I don't have time to do all these measures in my busy clinic. I'm half an hour behind. I'm in big trouble. It's a state, and the minute one aspect isn't reached, they're not an MDA, and then you can make a clinical decision. I'm waiting for something to work. I'm going to escalate, or this person's got too much comorbidities to escalate. So you don't have to do every single thing every time unless you're recording it for clinical trials, registries, important things. If they're sitting there with four joints, they're not an MDA. You've got to make a decision. And you don't have to do the other things unless you want to. So it's interesting that the two clinical trialists on this um, video are big proponents for MDA, but then again, so is Rachel Tate, who wrote a blog this week about why even the clinical practicing rheumatologists should be doing this. You're probably collecting the data already 
if you knew the parameters, you'd be able to put this label on your patients. Um, while we're on this, and, and I think both Philip and Peter alluded to this, do your patients follow a number? You know how patients say, what's my number? What's my PSA? If you have prostate cancer, what's my cholesterol? Um, you know, what, what's the number that they follow in your practices, uh, Dr. Misa Nash? I would say that probably 25, 30% of the patients that I see are tracking NDA. Uh, and um, I will make one comment, which is that everything in the uh, uh, MDA criteria is you could do within three or four minutes right there in the, in the office, except for the hack. That you have to do as a questionnaire, you have to score it. So I do a Seattle hack, which is, um, were you able to at least start the trail to Mount Sai last weekend or not? Uh, and uh, so everybody gauges their, their ability, whether they're going out hiking in the mountains on the weekend is, their, is the big thing in Seattle. I don't know what the Brooklyn hack would be. I guess the Brooklyn hack would be, how you doing, man? Right, how you uh, doing? <laughs> so, so something that's adapted to your local um, uh, uh, location. I don't know what it'd be in Brisbane, but the yeah, yeah. Peter, what's what is the Brisbane? <laughs> is that so really? We we got the hack outside in the waiting room while they're waiting to come in. They're busy filling out the hack. So there's, so there's no but, translation needed. No, but Philip, do you get the shoes and socks off everybody when you're running a half hour behind to do that joint count? Oh my God! Now you're going to make me <laughs> you're going to make me blush because I'm supposed to say yes, <laughs> but it doesn't always happen. Let me I put still it do. Um, you know, the patients I saw this afternoon take off your shoes. I don't necessarily need the socks off unless they have psoriatic disease. Then I want to see their nails, but you know, I do because you know, make them do it while while we're talking, and then I just need to go over there and yeah. I mean, I might have to douse my hands in gasoline at the end of the day. But, um, <laughs> that's just the way it goes. All right. So let's, let's wrap this one up, Rachel. Sure. So um, we can go on to the last one. So you, we've already basically discussed the conclusions here. Um, everyone said this already, but active psoriatic arthritis patients who have moderate to severely active psoriatic plaques, um, they do respond well to IL-17 inhibitors, as we mentioned. Uh, as you also know, in terms of exceed secukinumab and adalimumab, really when it comes to specific, specifically to joints, had pretty similar outcomes overall. But the advantage seems to be with the skin and then maybe combination skin that's severe, moderate to severely active with joints involved. So we had some questions here, but I'm gonna let I'm gonna open it up to you guys and see what are your thoughts on this. So did we learn more about the study by going to week 52 in the sub-analysis than we already got with the week 24 endpoint? You know, Philip, when you started all these PSA trials, it was always a week 16 endpoint. Um, and we kind of bounce around between primary endpoints at week 16 or week 24. Um, what is ideal? So I think uh, that this trial taught us that week 52 is longer than we needed to do, do it. I think we learned most of the lessons that we needed to prior uh, to week tw uh, 24 weeks or prior. Um, really not much further learned by week 52. The other point is that, and this gets a little bit more technical, normally we like to see 
data analyzed by non-responder imputation, which you can legitimately do out to week 16 or 24. Um, but when you get out to week 52 and people are moving away from your study site or dropping out for various reasons that may not have anything to do with efficacy or safety, NRI may is a tougher endpoint. So what was chosen in this study was a uh, MMRM analysis and not an NRI analysis. Well, the irony is that if it had done, been done by NRI analysis, uh, the exceed trial would have shown statistical superiority of secukinumab over adalimumab because of what Rachel showed at the beginning of the, the greater number of dropouts uh, in the adalimumab arm than the secukinumab arm. But they didn't. They said, well, you know, the probably MMRM is more appropriate for this long trial. So I come back to suggesting that uh, you know, for future head-to-head -head trials, I would choose either the 16 or 24 weekend point as was done in the uh, spirit head-to-head -head trial. So, so Jack, can I make a couple of comments? I think it's important to realize these are 300 milligram doses and we don't use 150 anymore because there's no safety penalty and the efficacy is better. Um, I think it's important to know that it was double blind where head, spirit head-to-head -head was uh, um, open label, that it was a monotherapy study. And as Phil pointed out, the NRI would have been significant at 52 weeks. Um, I think it's important to look at the question that most clinicians will ask in my treatment algorithm, should I go TNF or should I go IL-17? So we wanted to compare efficacy and we haven't really discussed safety from XC or from spirit head to head for that matter. And I think that's pretty crucial because we've shown the efficacy or you've shown the efficacy is very good across the domains and hard to separate, um, but it's the safety that's different. Discontinuations due to lack of efficacy with adalimumab double. Um, adverse events double. If you look at SAEs, they had something like triple the number of SAEs. And it's not just this study, it's, it's spirit head-to-head -head as well. They didn't get it in this study, but in spirit head-to-head, -head, they had uh, lymph node TB, they had legionella pneumonia, all on the adalimumab side. The things we're used to seeing um, with TNFs, the things that led ACR and ULAR to make their treatment algorithm go TNF first. So if you can't split the efficacy particularly, then safety becomes the next important question. They did have two cases of IBD in the XC full trial, but both had a pre-existing history of IBD. They got a little bit of candida. They got about a third of the um, injection site reactions, even though ADA was citrate free, they got double or triple more injection site reactions, hypersensitivity reactions. So I really think that the importance of these head-to-heads is to help the clinician with the treatment algorithm. And we're tending to go 17 or in V23 first, unless there's a specific TNF reason, like uveitis or inflammatory bowel disease. So I do think it's important. Grappa's very very importantly, gone a domain approach rather than a treatment algorithm approach, saying these are the drugs that work for each domain. You individualize your choice. But the others have had an algorithm that really, until you got head to head, is just opinion with low level of evidence. So I think it's convenience, it's monthly, not 
fortnightly. It's the cost, I suppose, is the same, but biosimilars might make a huge difference now. They've certainly halved the cost of TNFs in our country. So I think it has clinical implications, um, not only for people with bad skin, bad nails, but on the PSA side as well. That's very helpful. And I'm glad you, you, you focused on the safety aspect, which clearly differentiates there. Um, you know, a lot of the safety data with a lot of the new PSA drugs really look great. You know, it's partly the targets, it's partly the population, but, you know, it's certainly not what we see in RA. But as you pointed out, the, a lot of those RA opportunistic infections, TB kind of stuff is it's still in play there, no matter who you use it in. So let's um, um, go to, um, all right, let's go on to our next paper where um, uh, Dr. Nash, who was an author on that last paper, um, commented on this next paper um, and the potential use of IL-23 inhibitors. Uh, um, here, uh, Dr. Meese was a senior author. This was appeared in, um, in arthritis and rheumatology um, within the last year, uh, the efficacy of gaselkamab. Uh, this is the one-year results like the previous study. Um, this was previously published as a 24-week uh, endpoint, which was the primary endpoint. This is called the DISCOVER-2 trial. It's a phase three trial of gaselkamab, a monoclonal antibody that targets the um, uh, IL-23, but the P19 um, uh, on IL-23 that makes up IL-23 uh, in patients who are biologic naive. So this particular report is an extension uh, where the placebo population gets to cross over and receive active drug from week 24 on to week 52. Um, again, patients in this study also had moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Um, in the previous report, uh, gazelkamab was shown to be superior to uh, placebo and not only effective, but also was safe. So in this study, there are three arms. There's the gazelkamab 100 milligram sub-Q, Q4. Then there's a the gazelkamab 100 milligrams Q8. And then the last is the placebo population who had placebo for the first 24 weeks and then crossed over to receive the Sulcumab Q4 for, from week 24 to week 52. To get into the study, you had to have active psoriatic arthritis with five or more swollen and tender joints with a CRP that was above normal. And you had to have failed what they called um, not standard non-biologic therapies um, this wasn't just DMARDs. This was DMARDs, Apremilast, and even NSAIDs, um, patients who had uh, failed a course of NSAIDs. The primary endpoint was a week 24 endpoint of an ACR20 response. And that's shown more or less in the figure over here and in the box, big box in the upper right-hand corner where the Selcomab and Q8 and Q4 was basically double the response seen with the placebo response at week 24. Uh, secondary endpoints are like what we saw in the last trial, although this one was an X-ray outcome study as well. So the POSSE, ACR 20-50-70, the POSSE 75, 90, and 100, um, changes in BSA, dactylitis, enthesitis resolution, uh, HAC, DI outcomes, uh, and X-ray outcomes, with X-rays being assessed at uh, baseline week 24 and week 52. So in this study, um, 739 were randomized, 93% completed the one-year study. 
uh, and the benefits that were uh, seen at week 24 were largely maintained. So this is sort of the spoiler alert for, uh, in case you need to go uh, pick up your dinner, um, that the week 52 results were like the week 24 results, that there was basically low level um, non-radiographic progression, if you will, uh, and that there were um, significant improvements in function and quality of life. And from a safety standpoint, there were no opportunistic infections or death. So this study starts at week 24 and, and it's the extension. And you can see that uh, here, the placebo population that had a 33% response now gets the Kuselkamab Q4 regimen and caps, catches up within 12 weeks um, to the other two populations, which are basically have a maintained response uh, over time. Um, and this is the ACR 20 on top, ACR 50 on the bot beneath that and to the bottom right, ACR 70, showing again, the two solid lines, the, the Guselcomab Q4, Q8 from the beginning um, do well over placebo and that placebo does catch up either at week 24 by as far as ACR 20, ACR 50, but it takes a little longer to get that ACR 70 response out to week 44 and it just really doesn't quite look as good. So might this say, use your best drug first? Um, I always like evidence that says, use your best drug first. Um, I wanna ask my authors, this is a placebo control trial for the first 24 weeks. The last study we looked at did not have a placebo. I've always thought that non-placebo controlled trials where everyone knows they're getting some active drug have an inflated ceiling effect. Meaning you're gonna see higher ACR 20, 50, 70s. I don't know if you can see higher posse scores if everyone thinks they're getting drugged. Philip, P Peter, what do you think? Yes, so I think that the, the comment I would make about both Exceed and Spirit Head to Head was that we saw some of the best results that we have seen with um, either an IL-17 or TNF inhibitor in those trials. And that's partly, I think, because there was a little bit of um, optimism, let's say, in the patient population because they all knew they were on something that was going to be effective. Um, and so uh, we, do, we did see some very, very good results there that, that, uh, that may have been partly reflective of that. This is more realistic in that um, there is the placebo response. One thing I would like to mention, Jack, is that if, if we had had the graph of week zero to 24, pasted on to the left of the ACR 2050-70 graphs, what we would have seen was instead of that really uh, sharp curve uh, in the first 12 to 16 weeks, we would have seen a sort of linear increase uh, through week 24. And I, I would say, remember, this is an NRI analysis here. It's not a completers analysis or a uh, MMRM analysis. So I, I think that these increased, slightly increased responses that we're seeing out to week 52 are real. Uh, and, and so what I will tell patients that are going on an IL-23 inhibitor is um, uh, have patients, uh, the, uh, you may not see as rapid a, an effect at week 12 as you have, may have seen with some of your previous medications, but we're seeing some really robust uh, responses. I mean, these, this is looking at three quarters of patients getting an ACR20 response, uh, slightly less than 50% getting ACR50 50, 50 response. 
uh, out at, uh, at one year. So uh, uh, very sustained and, and uh, uh, very robust at that point. And I would just add that PSA trials are plagued with very high placebo rates, which is why you have to do it in that first 24 weeks. And depending which countries in the world you do it in, the countries that are supposed to be MTXIR, South America, Eastern Europe, Finch One, for example, the BIMI trial, ran into a lot of trouble with that placebo arm. So you must do it for the first 24 weeks. But after that, they're looking at uh, what you can recapture. And, you know, they recaptured very nicely. And they had very, very few discontinuations. 93% is not bad to get through to a year. So something's working well for those people who kept going. The other thing is the safety again. I mean, you know, the number needed to treat to get an MDA in this study was about somewhere between two and three. The number needed to harm was 100 before you got, you know, 1% serious infection, no different to the placebo in the first 24 weeks. As you said before, the safety of these very targeted molecules is really very impressive. And I think that's one of the reasons the derms are so happy with this drug. Three monthly, or sorry, two monthly dosing and the safety, they don't have to worry about stuff. So I'm going to, um, Evan Leibowitz from New Jersey has a great question about this placebo issue. Um, what is the most likely reason that we've seen the creep in placebo response over the years? And I want to put a little caveat in here. 20 years ago, when we were all doing clinical trials, I remember our good friend, Lee Simon, who was working as a director at the FDA, said, going a little berserk over the idea that um, the, the FDA had chosen the ACR20 as a primary endpoint in PSA trials when in fact it was developed for RA trials. And, but Lee admitted he was wrong because in the early trials that Philip published, all the placebo responses were like 6%, 7%, really incredibly low numbers, better than we were seeing in RA. And as such had a greater treatment effect delta between placebo and actual drug effects. So, Early on, it did was a very, very good venture, but um, between that time point and now, as Peter points out, placebo response rates have gone up and up and up. The question is why, gentlemen? Is it just because we're doing international trials or because it's harder to treat PSA in 2022? Hmm. So a couple of comments I, I would make, the, although one is too, uh, that jumps ahead, which is that we're seeing some lower placebo response rates in some in one of the newest programs that we're going to be seeing more data from shortly, and that's the bimikizumab program. But but uh, I can remember in the tildrakizumab trial, another IL-23 inhibitor, 50% placebo response in the ACR20. Uh, uh, fortunately, there was 80% treatment response, so that the delta, the effect size was fairly similar, but the uh, very high placebo response. Okay. I don't, I don't know all the reasons, uh, but some of it is geography. Uh, where, where these trials are done, we're having to go further and further afield to get uh, patients uh, for, for the trials. It's very hard to recruit in North America and Western Europe and, and easier to recruit in um, at least until the recent uh, troubles uh, in Eastern Europe uh, and the uh, and Russia and uh, Ukraine and Georgia, for example, as well as Latin America. 
So it, at least in some, uh, although I, I think it, the quality of work in some of those Eastern European centers has really improved a lot in the last uh, few years, there's, there might be cultural differences in how patients respond. This is the you know, only, this may be the only medical treatment they're getting coming into these trials. And so they really want to please the doctor. Uh, and so it stultifies reporting adverse events. It, it may, um, uh, uh, we may see a higher placebo response rate. So that's, that's, that's a small, at least a small portion of it. There, there may be other factors. Peter was alluding to it earlier, which was the fact that uh, patients theoretically have failed methotrexate but they're probably not um, consistently taking it. And then once they get in the trial and they're consistently taking it again, then the, and they, they're responding. And that's partly because they're now consistently taking up the Brexit. So that's another factor that I would point to. And I think there are important reasons. We, we've had this debate at TRIG and ACR about the placebo response, particularly in RA. So what we're seeing over time is the swollen joint counts coming down in these patients from a baseline of 20 to now baseline of 10. We're still supposed to find 20 to have a patient uh, um, eligible for biologic in our country. Um, so less swollen joints, a third of the patients had elevated CRP, the rest didn't. Um, Long duration disease means more tender joints driving some of the numbers rather than damaged rather than inflammation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and some of the novel therapies, particularly the JAKs, work very good for pain as much as for inflammation. So we'll have a benefit on some of these other scores. But I wouldn't underestimate the geographical things that Phil was talking about. And it'd be easy to fix. Somebody who's supposed to be MTXIR should have a low polyglutamate or a measurable serum methotrexate coming in. Um, there should be some way of checking compliance going into a trial because I remember in Finch 1, the hack improvement in the placebo arm was double the minimal clinically significant difference because they were getting methotrexate regularly for the first time. And they had a 60% uh, response rate at ACR 20 level it has nearly killed the trial. And the other thing, which again, it's easy to say, but in certain countries like Eastern European countries, money counts. And to keep someone in a clinical trial is financially very worthwhile. So the incentive not to drop people out is difficult. And in one of these studies that we looked at today, you only had to improve 5% to stay in. And in the good old days, it used to be 20% to stay in. So there are all kinds of these subtle little background things that I think are driving the placebo response. Um, I want to remind the audience of what, I, what Fred Wolf taught me, um, and that was the uh, placebo response goes up as the number of remaining options for the patient goes is down, meaning, um, but that doesn't always hold up. I mean, it's been a pretty good predictor, but not always, which has uh, something to do with whether you recruit internationally or not. Um, um, Melanie, Dr. Has this, yeah, yeah, Melanie, I was going to point out Melanie's point. You want to read it? Yeah, that that could the depression lead to a boost in uh, placebo response? I'd be interested in your offer in, in your assessment. You know, depression placebo responses are in depression clinical trials. Placebo responses are incredibly high. 
and delta effects are very, very quite narrow. Um, but the data is pretty clear about depression in our diseases driving up pain scores and kind of screwing up all the analyses. So what does depression do to placebo response in your opinion? See, I would have thought depression would make the pain scores higher, the visual analogs higher. Right, right. Um, Janet Pope always says that the, the uh, pain score shouldn't start at zero, it should start at four. Four to 10 instead of zero to 10. So I would have thought that would make it more difficult to get a good placebo response. But I, I agree with you 100%, Jack. In these patients, if you tell them they can't afford a biologic in many countries, they can't afford access to many things, and you say, if you can only hang in there for 24 weeks, I can get you active drug, um, stuff you'll never otherwise be able to get. So it's, it's really many multi-facets to why that's, that, that's high. I'm not sure depression is the reason. Okay, so let's move on. Um, other important outcomes, we didn't really highlight it very well in the last study, but um, it's, it's in there in most studies. Uh, this is a pooled data analysis from the Discover 1, Discover 2, both the cell command trials looking at resolution of dactylitis and resolution of enthesitis. As Rachel showed in her slides and in my slides, you know, high percentage of patients go in with, a, with a dactylitis and or en evidence of enthesitis. Um, and here you can see the percent, I underlined the line, it shows you the percent resolution and it, you know, 75% at week 52 at Q4, 76% for at week 52, but at week 24, it's only 40% over here with placebo. Uh, and again, the same kind of big numbers, although not quite as high with enthesitis resolution. These are, um, th this is great data. It is great data and it, it does, it's an, these are important domains. We know that both dactylitis and enthesitis are like skin disease severity, biomarkers of more severe psoriatic arthritis in general. Again, in the Corona registry, we found that uh, patients uh, with dactylitis or enthesitis had worse joint counts, worse skin scores, uh, worse function, productivity, and so on. So I, I really like the fact that we, in recent years, we've moved to looking at complete resolution. It's a very clear marker for us and shows us that the biology of these drugs works uh, in the enthesial compartment, in the tendon and bone compartments that are part of enthesitis and dactylitis respectively. So not just the synovium, not just the skin. Uh, uh, and I think this is uh, extremely important data. So it's critical across all the domains. For the practicing clinician, especially when we saw that they didn't quite hit significance for the eight weekly radiological progression, which I think we might come to, do we use four weekly, do we use eight weekly? And it was nice to see that you couldn't separate four and eight for nearly all those domains, including enthesitis and dactylitis. I've always been interested in the dactylitis um, resolution. Maybe you can go back my, one, uh, Jack, go back one slide. Because in my experience, you know, that big fat swollen digit, it loses its pain, it loses its swelling and its inflammation, but it stays big. So I don't know how they get a complete 100% resolution. Oh, but, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, oh, I can explain that, uh, Peter. Yeah, the, the lead dactylitis index uh, that Philip Hallowell developed, um, it, it, part of the equation is the critical aspect of whether it's tender or not. 
If it's tender, it gets a one on the equation. If it's not, it gets a zero. And so it, it can't, uh, getting a, a resolution of tenderness, even if you've got a little bit of residual increase of girth, uh, yields a complete resolution. So that's okay. how that's, we see that's some how, of that. Stuff. That's how it happens, okay. Yeah. Under, under the wire. Well, these are the x-ray results at week 52. Um, and I throw these up mainly to show, uh, first off, if you look at this fig, this table on the paper, it's, it's in landscape mode. It takes up the whole page. It's impossible <laughs> to read. Uh, it's dizzying. If I put it on a slide, it, I killed everybody. So I just did a bit of cut and paste here. This is total um, PSA modified um, uh, uh, total sharp score on top. Um, and then erosion score, and then joint space narrowing scores, basically showing you that while these patients, all of them did ultimately receive Gaselkamab, um, certainly the Q4, Q8 had very little change. This is one sharp unit out, out of a, what's the total here? Probably, well, I don't know if it's 400. It's, is, it's, uh, it's, it's over 400. It's like okay. 435 or something like that. So, so it's you know, very high. Right. This is below the limits of, uh, of detectable difference almost, but it's I think this is encouraging data. And there was a difference between, I think the placebo at week 24 and, um, and the Gaselkamek Q4 uh, as far as total sharp score. But um, any other comments about this, uh, th these x-ray results? Just an x-rays for FDA, it's not for the, the practitioner. We don't even do them much anymore. Sure. If you really want to see some sensitive change, you really should do MRI. Right. I don't know why the SAMRIS is not being asked for by the FDA. Maybe it's not the kind of measure you can compare around the world and, and uh, have it all standardized. So for us, it's tick. It's not an expensive NSAID. It's a disease modifier. Move on. SAMRIS is, is a um, the, the standardized measure for x-ray scoring? PSA, no, for, PSA MRI. Right. MRI. Um, yeah. But I would say that for the practicing rheumatologists, like in our clinic, slapping on ultrasound is uh, really helpful. Uh, and we look for power Doppler light up or not. Uh, and if there's power Doppler light up has resolved, we can feel more comfortable that we were achieving something in terms of control of synovitis. And I, I think this is just telling us that there's very little progression once you get on one of these uh, advanced biologics. We find the ultrasound helpful as well. Um, we've got a girl who does it for all of our group. And I find it most helpful in the person with lots of symptoms, but nothing defined. See if there's some clinical synovitis there or power Doppler signal. And that person that I want to taper or discontinue, where I want to make sure there's no subclinical synovitis or they'll flare for sure. Rachel, you had a question? No, that was my point. I was going to say, I think most clinicians, at least in the U.S. that I know, use ultrasound. So I'm glad that it's echoed amongst our experts. Okay. So the skin outcomes are, um, are, are shown here. This is a Q4, Q8, and the placebo group. Um, and you can look at the POSSE 70, um, 75, 90, and 100 scores. Um, POSSE 75, 86% with these two regimens, 75% for posse 90 and uh, over 55% or so for uh, at week 52 for posse 100. These are really um, great numbers. And again, this is 
at least at the at week 24 time point, those are placebo control numbers. These numbers are really astounding, the week 24 numbers compared to the placebo response uh, shown on the far right. So, so the skin responses to 17 and 23 have changed the ball game. Um, very hard to do a double blind trial where after two weeks, one group have no rash left and the other group have still got their rash unchanged, but there you go. Um, and I think the critical thing is whether you can get away without methotrexate. So I want to see the uh, responses with and without concomitant MTX. I'm not sure I've seen that with the gazelkamab stuff. Um, so they're the kinds of, of practical things for us. But um, And then you want to make sure that it doesn't lose effect over time. And I think they've now out to two, three, four years with psoriasis studies, and there doesn't seem to be any tachyphylaxis over time. True. So the last slide actually just as a safety review, uh, if you read the, the data, they have a few tables and whatnot. Most common, just like all the other um, trials of new bio, newer biologics in psoriatic arthritis, it's upper respiratory infections, nasopharyngitis, uh, bronchitis, sort of um, non-serious infectious events. There was a minor um, LF, LT elevations. I, was, I didn't even suspect expect that, but there's some low level numbers that were not much different and probably related just having psoriasis. Uh, SAE percentages. Wait, wait, wait. Sorry, before leaving that, you're, you're absolutely right. But carry the viewer of uh, um, psoriasis because obesity, oh, sure, fatty, sure. fatty liver, right. ergo LFT abnormalities. So. Right. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I, I just sort of broke, <laughs> rushed by that when, in fact, I've been talking about it on a bunch of other things that we've been doing this week. But you're, that's exactly right. And I mean, psoriasis, it could be for those reasons. And then inherently they are, you know, that's the methotrexate story. Inherently they, it, it could be that's that right. it is because they, they were drinking more alcohol, had pre-existing uh, NFALD, but they're more likely to get LFT elevations than is a, your average RA, for instance. So um, SAE numbers were evenly distributed across all treatment groups. SIE numbers are incredibly low. That's 1.5 for 100 patient years. Again, the pre-biologic um, RA numbers were three to nine per 100 patient years. Um, the biologic numbers in RA are like you know two to six. Um, and here we're seeing 1.5 for the total um, population treated with PSA. So- um, And it's important, Jack, to mention the negatives. So. No malignancy signal, no deaths, no uh, issues with um, uh, yeah, opportunistic infections, uh, including Canada, uh, no IBD issues. Uh, so these are important negatives that I, uh, I think it's, it, it makes the uh, safety discussion a little bit shorter with the patients, which is nice. Exactly. Um, uh, the practicing, sorry, the practicing clinician wants to know which should I use, 17 or 23, Phil? Uh, yeah. Well, do I, do, is, well that's, you, that's or maybe, a, maybe more, more importantly, how do you make that decision? I'm sure you use both. Yeah, yeah we use both. So there's one, uh, there's one point that raises a controversy that uh, we're, we're in the midst of exploring, which is how effective are the IL-23s in the spine? Uh, and so, for example, one way of answering Peter's question could have been, well, if the patient has evidence of axial PSA, we know we have solid data with 
as he mentioned earlier with AS and non-radiographic axial spine, that IL-17s work well in the spine. And there have been a couple of failed trials of IL-23s in ankylosing spondylitis. So there was a few years ago, a kind of an idea forming that maybe IL-23s don't work as well if the patient happens to have the axial domain. But that now is challenged, that, that assumption, uh, based on another paper that was re, uh, recently published in Lancet Rheumatology in which we looked at a subset of patients in these DISCOVER 1 and 2 trials with Gazelcomab. 30% of the population of the two studies, patients, uh, investigators thought they had axial disease. And if they had imaging evidence, either X-ray or MRI, of sacroiliac changes thought to be consistent with sacroiliitis, they were included in the substudy. And they were believable. They had high spine pain scores. They, about 30% were HLA-B27 positive. So it looked like a reasonable cohort. And they had great responses. They had uh, strong ASDAS uh, 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 changes um, compared to placebo, uh, including major improvement and um, uh, inactive disease. Uh, they, their spine pain uh, scores improved considerably, uh, very, very statistically separated. So it stood on, on end our assumption that about axial disease, and maybe there's enough difference between axial PSA from axial SPA or AS that, um, that maybe uh, IL-23s might work in the spine. So that, that is being explored further by a big trial that Janssen is doing called the STAR study in which they're looking in a dedicated way at patients with axial PSA and all the bells and whistles uh, MRI scan uh, and with inflammation to get into the study and then serially over time. So we can really appropriately uh, address this question. I suppose that if the patient also has inflammatory bowel disease history, I might choose an IL-23. Uh, that would be an example of, of making a choice there. Um, otherwise, uh, they're really you know, they're very, they're, I think they both perform very well. And so it's, it's a little bit of a toss up. Peter, how about you? What would you say? Well, exactly as you've said, and I think we've encouraged them to do a head to head and, and try and see if they can split them. They probably won't because there's not a lot of upside for either of them to do a head to head. But it's interesting that DERMs have done head to head for nearly all the important drugs. Why can't we insist on that as well? Um, we learn a lot from spirit head-to-head -head and from XC. Um, no matter what the outcomes were and the safety things were, we learn a lot and would be nice to have some head-to-heads to answer questions. Like we're going to have three IL-23s. Which one do you pick? We've got, what, three, four, 17s. Which one do you pick? Is there any advantage of blocking F over blocking A, you know, A and F? So, you know, these are questions that are very practical and the clinician wants an answer because you often the recommendations put up a treatment algorithm just based on opinion and, you know, registry data and experience over years and, and really um, the, like the ACR PSA guidelines made me laugh. And when, you know, the first head to head that was done, it changed the, half the decisions they made on very low evidence.
So um, they should be encouraged to do the same in Broome as they do in Durham. So let me just um, throw, you, throw out my two cents on head-to-head, -head, um, where I think head-to-head -head trials in psoriasis and dermatology has had a major impact on the thinking on that side of the fence. But head-to-head -head trials in rheumatology have had very little impact on actual use. Now, you, you, all of you as experts and people who follow the data might have been influenced by head-to-head -head trials in rheumatology. I would say that maybe the big influence in dermatology, as, as I've tried to understand it, is maybe because the dermatology decision-making is driven by a smaller number of medical dermatologists who are plugged into this data, who, are, who then become the, the big whales in influencing the rest of the dermatology world on whether you should use a 23 or a 17 over uh, a jack or over a, a, a TNF inhibitor. Whereas in rheumatology, everybody's an expert. Everybody's got the same prescription pad and we're seeing all these people equally. So and I ain't got time to look at all the data that Peter Nash wants me to look at. Yeah, but are you driven by your reimbursers and your regulators as to what you can choose rather than what you'd want to choose? Well, that becomes a gigantic cop-out when you ask the hard question as you started this discussion, like which would you use, which would you prefer to use? Well, I can't, I can't decide. United Healthcare <laughs> is handcuffing me and they're holding my dog hostage unless I use a Adalimumab, you know, something like that. Um, but so that's part of the equation, certainly. And, it, and it's regionally different, you know, Southeast versus Northwest. And then there's Texas, which is, you know, we'll Texas, you can get, get anything you want. Yeah, it's almost like Australia. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask, um, my big problem with a lot of this great data is it's all generated in polyarticular PSA. When the vast majority of us are treating um, oligoarticular disease. Rachel, do you apply this to your patients with oligoarticular the same way as you would if they had really, you know, 20 tender and 12 swollen? I mean, I, I think I asked this of Dr. Meads previously at an ad board once, but I, I mean, I think to some degree, practicing in a clinical realm, I do. I have to apply it based on what information we have. Um, <clears throat> I'm proud that we have, again, GRAPA guidelines that are forthcoming that are going to be a little more domain specific. I think that helps because most of my patients who come in with either poly or oligoarticular disease have another domain that's active. And if I'm not looking for that, I may make the wrong decision. The little okay. data we have, that, that, just pardon me, but the little data we have suggests that the response in oligoarticular disease is as good as it, as it is in polyarticular disease. We, it's, we it's, ask this question every time, don't we, Phil? And they always yeah. say the numbers are too small for subset, but DAFT is published on it and they respond the same. It's the seronegative, seropositive argument again, both respond the same. Yeah. I think the big, Jack, one of the questions that should be mentioned is that let's say you've got a patient with monoarticular knee swelling and pain who has PSA. Do you go through the same uh, sequences that you do with a patient with polyarticular disease? My argument is yes, because that knee is, infect, uh, is uh, significantly impacting that patient's function and quality of life. 
and so, uh, but I do find that some rheumatologists will be kind of shy about they'll they'll emphasize a little bit more. Well, let's just do serial injections. And now there's there's a few people that are starting to do PRP injections in addition to steroid injections. And and then there's the um, um, issue. Well, gosh, we shouldn't expose them to the risk of these medications uh, if they've got a single joint that's involved. But again, if it's really impacting function, I think we should pay attention to that. And now with the newer medications, as Peter has been emphasizing, uh, and their safety record, it's not quite the same uh, concerns. Uh, and so I think uh, we're, we should be paying close attention to the patients with one or two joints. Um, last question. Um, one of our viewers is asking about network meta-analyses and do, is there anything that we can glean from that? I, if you want my blood pressure to go up, then show me network meta-analysis data. Um, how do you folks feel about it? Well, I, I noticed that's an anonymous attendee that asked that question. So. <laughs> Smart. He's probably a statistician. <laughs> well, I'm probably not the right person to ask because I'm the lead author on an NMA from with the Gazelkamab data. And so uh, <laughs> I, you might find me biased. I'm curious what Peter would have to say. Look, it's very difficult. Um, hugely criticized when uh, one of the NMAs was presented at ULA when they went out past the placebo period. Um, and they seem to be published by the pharma which finds their drug is superior in the NMA. <laughs> and they pick the outcome measures that make their drug look the best. And suddenly they're publishing PSARC, which we really haven't paid much attention to for 20 years, but still. So NMAs are what you do when you've got no head to head and they need to go to the regulators and argue some cost benefit analyses to try and get their drug funded. And so, I think there's a place for them. I'm not sure the clinician pays much attention to them because they're considered to be pharma um, advertising, but they do have an important role when you go to the regulator to try and get funding for your drug and try and have some kind of comparison with whatever they're paying for whatever's already approved. <clears throat> I, I would agree uh, completely with what Peter has just said. If you look at the graph of publications on NMAs, it's just gone like this in the last few years. Head-to-heads uh, are expensive. NMAs are kind of expensive because they take a, burn a lot of statistician time. One of the things that's, that's changed in the, in the landscape of NMA science in the last uh, few years has been publication of principles of practice. So there are now the prism, what are called the prism or PRISMA uh, uh, guidelines for how you do a well-done NMA, uh, which gets us theoretically a little bit further up the scale of integrity. Uh, and uh, the NMA that I was involved with, with Gazelkamab, it was a encyclopedia. The, there was the primary paper, but then the supplemental tables were unbelievably voluminous uh, and uh, just to show, hey, this was, we were following all the right guidelines in, in how we were doing this. And they looked at multiple different endpoints. So I think the quality of them is getting better. 
And as Peter says, they're here to stay because payers uh, and various agencies of various kinds need them uh, as we get more and more effective medications uh, to help us choose uh, and to guide clinicians. I want to end by answering Marilyn Solsky's question about your patient comes into the trial with elevated LFTs, what happened? You can get into these trials with some minor elevations of LFTs up to uh, 1.5 uh, times the upper limit of normal and get in the studies. And a lot of these patients are like your patients. They bounce around with low level numbers that don't really mean anything. And those numbers I pointed out that were seen in with AST and LT are low level elevations. They're not greater than threefold or twofold elevations. So uh, the point was that they were seen, that they were just watched and they didn't really go anywhere. Um, and, and it's really like our practices. So I wanna thank our um, uh, um, experts here, Rachel, um, Peter, and Philip for a really lively, intelligent discussion of pivotal data that really is important to uh, rheumatology and dermatology. And um, we're gonna repeat this particular um, journal club in, um, in a, I guess it's going to be, let me just show you another slide here, if, if I can end on a slide. Um, we're gonna repeat uh, the journal club again in a few weeks, two weeks, we're gonna have another journal club, but next week our Tuesday night rheumatology is gonna be um, a panel discussion um, that's going to include uh, Dr. Dr. Nash, um, and uh, uh, Chris Richland and Daphne Gladman and others, where we're gonna lay out a bunch of really critical hard questions for our panel and see how they handle things that you struggle with on a daily basis. So thanks very much everyone for a great session. We'll see you all next week. Cheers, thanks Jeff. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. What time is it in Australia? It's 10 a.m. on a Wednesday morning and it's <laughs> And it's autumn and it's about 75 degrees. Beautiful. We wish we were with you. Take good <laughs> care. Bye-bye. Yes, bye. -bye. bye, -bye.